0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we celebrate our second anniversary of the podcast, review the current state of the podcast, and introduce a new segment for state-specific issues. We also talk about the flu season, review common fluoroscopy issues, and in our focus segment, discuss workplace harassment and interview Rena Courtney regarding disruptive providers.
1: Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, a podcast for anyone interested in the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is increasingly challenging, but organizations that outsource their regulatory oversight to ambulatory healthcare strategies
0: have an edge. AHS works with ASCs to oversee their quality improvement,
1: risk management, emergency and infection control programs. Run their meetings, develop education programs, and always be prepared for surveys. Welcome to episode 81 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for January 13th, 2020, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS, and I'm here with John Gailey. John is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in all aspects of the ambulatory surgery industry. He is the author of the major books about the industry and the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the industry leader in ASC Regulatory and Accreditation, Governance, and Quality Improvement Oversight. John speaks frequently at both national and state ASC meetings on a wide variety of topics. So as you mentioned, this is the second anniversary of the podcast.
0: It's incredible, isn't it, that we've been doing this for two years. Of course, you joined mm-hmm. us uh, about six months into it, I believe. Mm-hmm. But uh, we started in January of 2018, and here we are in 2020. It's yes. uh, still hard for me to, to say that now. <laughs> and this is our 81st episode, 81 yeah. episodes that we've done so far. It's incredible. With 14,000 downloads so far, mm-hmm. an average listenership of about 200 listeners per episode and uh it's just it's going strong and we always get a lot of good feedback from our listeners so thank you for all of the uh, wonderful things you say about us and for being uh, loyal listeners to this podcast we uh you know with a new year uh mm-hmm. it's time to do a little bit of changing so one of the changes we're going to make um probably the most significant is that we're adding to our third section. And anyone that has listened to our podcast for the last two years knows that we always split the episodes into three parts, the first one being news and information, second a focus segment, and the third section has been about uh, upcoming events. And Mm -hmm. what we're going to be doing is we're going to add to that third section uh, state-specific issues because we know that there's a lot of things going on in many of our states and not everybody's going to want to listen to those necessarily. Mm -hmm. So we figured by adding that to the third uh, segment, if there is nothing going on in mm-hmm. their particular state, then they can uh, drop off at the end of the second yep. section. So,
1: A lot of times, if something's happening in one state, you don't know. It could be coming your way. So I think it's it's always good to kind of know what's going on around the country.
0: Absolutely. That's a very good point. So, But we will be concentrating, especially in the big states, uh, and we do know where our listeners largely come from. That's New York, California, Florida, Texas, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Although uh, we will bring up news that we're aware of from any state. And we are going to need some help identifying those issues. So if you are from a state and you feel that something that happened in that state would have uh, interest to uh, other people and would like to have it uh, announced on the podcast, please feel free to send us uh, information about it at comments at com. A couple other things that are going on is we have upped the number of AEUs that are being offered. We're currently working with the Board of Ambulatory Surgery certification to uh, get the credits taken care of for quarter four. We expect it to be around three AEU credits for the quarter, though we're not sure yet. We're still working on that. Uh, And of course, our patron program is is going strong. If you want to support the podcast and help us uh, cover the costs of this program, please follow the link in the show notes or go to our website at ascpodcast.com and consider becoming a patron member of the podcast and on the patron program uh, website you can see a, a list of the benefits for uh, patron members. Uh, the biggest one is, of course, uh, being able to get uh, AEUs for uh, listening to the podcast. And our sponsors continue to grow. SIS will be joining us in February for a number of episodes, and we're always looking for sponsors that are interested in uh, providing you know, sponsorship for the podcast. So if you're interested, send a request for information at uh, info at And we had
1: our post-holiday party this past weekend. That was a lot of fun. We got to see people we hadn't seen in quite a while. And
0: I, I'm looking at you and you're smiling now. You, <laughs> that is not the way things were going yesterday uh, before the party. But before, was, yeah.
1: During the party I was smiling.
0: Yeah so we we a had nice a lot party. of fun and our party yeah. is uh, kind of a combination of family, friends, uh, our uh,
1: past co-workers. Past I think coworkers. That's, that's a lot of fun seeing people that we used to work with that we don't get to see on a regular basis.
0: Right and, and our uh, uh, various uh, clients. Uh, mm-hmm, some of them mm-hmm. come. You know, a lot of our clients are from New York City, and for some reason, they didn't feel like driving <laughs> six hours here. Uh, but we had some of our friends from Buffalo come to uh, to visit us. Yes. So it was it was a great party, and it's an annual event. And uh, mm-hmm. so, if you are a client of uh, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and want to travel to uh, upstate New York <laughs> in the middle of the winter time, uh, watch out for next year's third <laughs> annual uh, party invitation. And Sue, so, as you you mentioned, seeing our coworkers and uh, enjoying their company and and mm-hmm. talking uh, through what's going on in their lives kind of uh, gets to the heart of what we're talking about later on mm-hmm. today. Is you know how do we how do we develop a good culture in our organization? How do we avoid workplace harassment issues? How do we relate to our uh, fellow employees? Yeah. And
1: uh, I think every every workplace has a different culture, but you want to make sure that it's a good, positive culture and people feel supported. I know with my nurse family partnership co-workers, I w- it was so nice seeing a few of them yeah. that I hadn't seen in a long time. And you have some where you had started out and it's just always nice to feel that you're still close to people. It's almost right. like a family. And that's so important when you're actually working at the place to have that feeling. It helps the patient care. It helps Retention—it's it, just helpful to have. And I think it's a good with.
0: sign of a healthy culture when people uh, like to, you know, socialize mm-hmm. with fellow workers. You know, it's not necessary, of course, but when you see that happening, where you know some of your friends come from, you know, where you work, uh, I think it just shows that you have a very healthy environment. And of course, the fact that that you remain friends even after you leave mm-hmm. shows that that mm-hmm. uh, culture follows you as you leave that organization. So. Yeah.
1: And as you mentioned, that kind of ties in with what we're going to be talking about because. We want to address disruptive physicians specifically, but it right. can really apply to anybody. Just trying to keep a safe, comfortable, trusting uh, culture in your workplace. Right. So this is a busy week. Some
0: of us are heading off to New Orleans. You're you're not going <laughs> nope. with me. Uh, uh, we had to leave a couple people back here to, uh, to be able to take care of any issues that pop yeah. up uh, during the next week. Uh, I'll be heading down to New Orleans on Thursday morning for the ASCA 2020 Winter Seminars, and I'll be, uh, I think I'm doing two or three sessions there. I can't remember how many I'm doing. I guess I better look at my notes before I get there.
1: (laughs) Alex and Judy are going a little bit early, and they're going to enjoy New Orleans, and then they'll be, of course, at the conference.
0: Right. So make sure you reach out and say hi to us. Uh, We will be recording uh, some content. We don't have a full studio going to the New Orleans conference, but... We will uh, try to get a couple uh, interviews and at least discuss what we've been learning while we're there, mm-hmm. uh, at least with the other ambulatory Healthcare Strategies people.
1: And in other news. <laughs> right. right. Most oh, important. Those of you yes, <laughs> that have listened for a while know we've lost a couple of our um furry family members. That's right. A couple of our our dogs just recently, and we've decided that we're gonna get a new puppy. So it'll be a little while, but should be born sometime in February, early February. So around April you may start to hear Click clacking of paws right. again in the background <laughs> of the podcast, or a, a little yipping or something. But we're very excited.
0: Yeah, it's a cream colored golden retriever, uh, purebred uh, from a breeder here in New York, and uh, we put the deposit down. And uh-huh. and the funny thing is, we were we, both of us were at a client just after we had put the deposit down, uh-huh. and we got a text message yes. from him asking if we wanted to pick up a puppy like that week.
1: Yeah, they had somebody back out, and it was one of the yeah. pick of the litters with. The conference and a few other things. We have to make sure we have a, a little bit of time at home. And we haven't we the the puppy proof the house yet. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we have some. We have to prepare.
0: Yeah, and we also decided to hold off on replacing <clears throat> the carpeting in the house. I yes. think that was a very good decision. But uh, very excited about yeah. that. So. So,
1: so, so one of the other things we we're going to talk about is this flu season. So there've been forty eight hundred deaths so far this. I don't want to say this year, but this season. Unfortunately, the most prevalent strains are the ones that are affecting the pediatric population, predominantly the B strain of influenza. So there have been so far 32 pediatric deaths this season compared to 16 at this point last season. On the flip side of that, they're saying there's probably going to be a lower total death rate this season because most of the deaths usually are occurring in people over 65 because of the complications, but the strains that are out there now are not targeting the, the older population. And they also are saying the vaccine appears to not be terribly effective this year. But, of course, you want to get it anyways. As soon as you can, it's not right. too late. it at least reduces the severity, even if it doesn't prevent you from actually getting the flu. Right. And if you feel that you're sick, the antivirals, they say, are, are pretty effective this year against these strains. But they must be started preferably within two days of getting sick. so if if you feel it's where you're headed and especially if you're somebody who has some comorbidities where you're you know you, you really want to avoid getting sick, you probably want to see your doctor as soon as you can. right see if you can get started on those.
0: And again, a very important takeaway here is that uh, you really should be making sure that all of your employees uh, mm-hmm. do get the flu vaccine. We know that it might not be as effective as it has been in the past, but it is still really extremely important that we mm-hmm. take every measure possible to reduce the possibility that we spread you know, the flu to other people in our, our patient population. Yes. So there's been um, quite a number of questions that have been raised to, uh, to us about fluoroscopy. And of course, in our own staff, we do have uh, radiation tech uh, who helps us through all these things. And I know she recently visited one of your organizations. She's now actually going to be going around to all of our, mm-hmm. our clients just mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, everything is uh, in good shape. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things that we found with regard to mm-hmm. fluoroscopy in our, our surgery center and clinic population?
1: So Judy and I were traveling last week together, and we were discussing some of the common issues in the area of fluoroscopy. She is our director of education, and she was a rad tech for many years, so she has a great understanding of this. And I hope that we'll have her on a future episode, and and she can talk a little more in depth on this. But I just wanted to go over some of the basics. So the physicians must have in their delineation of privileges that they are privileged in diagnostic and therapeutic use of fluoroscopy. Um, That would seem obvious, but sometimes that just gets missed. So make sure that they have that. And Um, that is a
0: common citation to, uh, you know, through the accreditation and CMS uh, surveys.
1: And in most states, only the physician or the rad tech can actually operate or or push the button on the C-arm.
0: That is correct, right.
1: And make sure that every employee who is ever in the room when that fluoroscopy is being operated has their own badge with their name on it. It doesn't matter if they're just filling in two, three, four, five times a year because you have to keep track of what doses they might be getting. So somebody sends off those badges and you'll get back a report with... Their exposure, and make sure that the person in charge of radiation safety is signing that that full report, and that each employee that has the badge that uh, get a chance to look at it and just initial next to their name, so that we know that everybody's had a look at that. And there's a lot of ways to limit exposure. If you can stand back a little bit, you know, every few inches makes a big difference with the dose that you're getting with that scatter. So. And take it
0: seriously. I mean, this is, uh, you know, very, could be dangerous equipment used improperly, Mm -hmm. and and the ramifications of having high doses is uh, is pretty significant Mm -hmm. for employees.
1: Just do what you can to limit your exposure. There's really three things to mitigate your dose. There are time, distance, and shielding. So... Even a few inches can double your exposure if you lean in closer or move away. So just always be aware of that. Don't be casual about it just because it's something you do in your everyday job. Judy was mentioning that people that use fluoroscopy on a regular basis have a higher rate of cataracts. That's not when they go over on their doses. It's just something It's one of those risks. So just be aware of that. And take um, this and seriously you again that, yes. you know r-
0: recognize that uh, even though this is a common piece of equipment that we're using, there are some significant ramifications to uh, to the use.
1: So again, hopefully we'll talk to Judy in a future episode, but just keep those things in mind. So
0: let's take a short break and we'll come back and uh, go into our focus segment on disruptive behavior in the ASC setting. So I thought we would do a focus segment on disruptive behavior in the ASC setting, and I want to talk in in general about disruptive behavior in the setting, both from patients, other employees, and of course physicians. And mm-hmm. then we'll have an interview later on uh, specifically about physician behavior since that is a, is an ongoing issue, but I don't want this to be the only thing we talk about here. Mm-hmm. So disruptive or aggressive behavior may result from a reaction to excessive stress facing an individual. And disruptive or aggressive behavior can potentially escalate to a violent situation, increasing the risk of danger to patients, visitors, and staff. So,
1: and I think that's an important point because so there are people that you know you always have to be careful because they could fly off the handle. But we've heard about cases where there's people they are the most mild-mannered, most understanding people. But they have a high level of stress in their personal right. life. And at work, and it just compounds. And all of a sudden, there's a huge issue. And, and you have to think about how to deal with that, even if you don't think you have somebody on your staff where this could become an issue. Right. And we've talked
0: in previous episodes, too, and even had an interview regarding active shooter, for example, mm-hmm. and how it's it's a known fact that uh, active shooters are usually people that you know, either former employees or, you know, relatives or friends of uh, employees at the organization. So let's talk a little bit, Sue, about some of the signs of aggression.
1: Okay. And some of these are very obvious, but some are, are a little bit more subtle. So obviously yelling, swearing, name-calling, insult, sarcasm, or threats. And it might just be something where the person seems to be Somebody that that just kind of uses that to communicate, but it's a bad sign. Um, flushed face, tense muscles, clenching their fists or jaws. You could just see them kind of getting worked up. Loud, rapid speech or breathing. Intense facial expressions and glaring, just basically looking angry. Emotional overreaction could be a sign that they're really experiencing a lot of stress. Stamping their feet, of course. <laughs> which
0: is which is what we see in our grandchildren. <laughs> yes. Uh but sometimes
1: um throwing or striking objects. That uh, that's pretty much you know, something's going on. Right. They start throwing That's things. Right. But it has happened.
0: And, and, you know, this is no small uh, issue. And, and uh, I, I've seen it. You know, every year we see something in at least one of our clients. And certainly during my tenure as an administrator, um, this was something that we were dealing with on a regular basis mm-hmm. uh, among staff members or uh, physicians. And, uh, you know, it wasn't often that we would see it among patients, thankfully. Yeah but these are things that could really escalate very quickly. So I I want everybody to take this pretty seriously.
1: We had heard about in in one center that there were a couple of nurses that actually got kind of aggressive. And as I said, some of these seem obvious, but it escalated very quickly. There was a little disagreement. Somebody shook a paper or a a form in somebody else's face. and next thing you know, it was actually physical. So you know, try to catch it earlier. You it, right. it can go very quickly from just looking a little angry and you think it's not a big deal. And then all of a sudden it's gone past that.
0: So let's talk about some of the ways that the disruptive behavior can be uh, de-escalated. So, you know, for example, position yourself uh, so that you have immediate access to an exit. In other words, never put mm-hmm. yourself in a position where um, you have no out uh, just in case the situation does become violent.
1: Yeah, we were always taught that in the hospital. You, you don't Get yourself where they're between you and the door.
0: Right, and that's pretty good advice. Not only mm-hmm. in the surgery center setting, but obviously Anytime. in life in general. Uh, position yourself at a right angle to the individual. Don't, in other words, don't stand directly in front of that person.
1: Might seem threatening.
0: Right. Kind of. And to that point, don't invade the individual's personal space. A good distance is three to six feet away. And remember, uh, culturally, this distance can mm, be quite different. Some people have uh, much smaller distances, I think, and I think we all have our way uh, distance. Like mine seems to be about three to four feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, in some cultures, you know, getting right in your face is very yeah. common for them. So it's not meant as a, a threatening situation. But understand, you know, personal space and be very conservative with regard to that space.
1: Mm-hmm. And to that point, sometimes there is somebody in your center that you know just has that calming manner i think you've talked about this in past podcasts so if you see a situation that might be escalating sometimes calling that person in that just seems to calm everybody down you know they just instinctively know some of these things so be aware of your resources and part of that is avoiding any sudden movements which may be threatening, because even though these people seem like they're being aggressive, they're a lot of times reacting to their environment and, and you just don't want to escalate that. Project calmness. As I said, some people just do. Move and speak slowly, quietly, confidently. Don't do anything alarming.
0: Uh, don't challenge, threaten, or dare that individual. And certainly don't belittle the person or make him or, f- or her feel foolish. And don't criticize or act impatiently uh, toward that agitated individual.
1: And some of that is just Body language, like standing with your hands on your hips or pointing your finger when you're talking, crossing your arms. You want to seem more open and understand you to their point.
0: Right. Right. Next one I think is an important one too is like a, be an empathetic listener. Encourage the person to speak while you listen patiently. Uh, indicate that you can see that he or she is upset. You know, this is one of the advantages that I have perhaps since I, uh, for those that don't know, I'm a Presbyterian minister and, uh, you know, part of our training really comes into how, how to de-escalate situations and and how to, to be a very good listener. And, and I hope I do a good job of doing that. Uh-huh. But uh, learning to listen more and talk less uh, in life, in general, mm-hmm. uh, as well as in these types of situations, can it can definitely help to de-escalate the situation very rapidly.
1: Yeah, you don't want to jump right to defending yourself, even if you really feel you've done no wrong, and you just want to tell the person you're overreacting. You're right. You don't ever want to do that. You want to first, even if you're not agreeing with them, let them know that you're hearing what they're saying, that you understand that they're upset, and you understand why they're upset. And then right. after, you can move to you know trying to get to a more reasonable place and asking for a small specific favors such as asking the person to move to a quieter area maybe you know where there's no objects that can be used as weapons or moving away from other people but just trying to kind of get that feeling of working together can use delaying tactics to give a person time to calm down, offer to get a drink of water, offer, again, let's go sit down over here, where it's a little quieter, where I can really take the time to listen and, and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, just recently uh, I was visiting a client and and we had a, a situation where uh, one of the employees was uh, starting to get very upset and her she was raising her voice at that point. And that was the first thing that I did is just, you know, calmly said, hey, listen, can we move this, company? you know, sit it in, mm-hmm. in a very non-threatening way yeah. and just, you know, helping them to understand understand that uh, they needed to move away from uh, the presence of the patients, moving uh-huh. away from other people. Uh, and uh, that quickly de-escalated the situation. And, and by the way, it, it was, that actually de-escalated very quickly because just bringing to their attention that this was occurring in front of a patient helped them to pull upon their, their training and uh-huh. their knowledge uh-huh. that this isn't something that should happen in front of a patient.
1: Yeah, and that's the point. It can escalate or de-escalate so quickly, so you just always want to be moving in the right direction. Um, Don't try to impart a lot of technical or complicated information when people are beginning to get upset. You don't want to just be throwing things at them and just upset them because they don't even know what you're talking about. Um, Don't take sides or agree with distortion. So, So we don't want to defend everything, but if they're really not seeing things clearly, you want to understand what they're saying but not agree
0: That's right. And, you know, repeating back to him or her what you feel he or she is requesting of you, and this is Mm -hmm. a really good technique that I use a lot too. With any conversation. With any conversation, especially if if you don't have a particular opinion yourself or you don't know what's going on, uh, it it does two things. First of all, it helps them to know that you are listening to them Mm -hmm. and and gives you a little bit of time to absorb what's going on and try to figure out that you truly understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, And it's also, as long as you're just repeating it back and not, again, adding uh you know an indication that you're taking a side or yeah or watch your with tone watch the yes. tone correct
1: it's a great way to clarify what you think they're saying and where they can correct you without it being argumentative right um don't make false statements or promises don't just be placating because they will probably see through that plus right. if it doesn't come through you're just stuck back in that situation
0: and be aware of anything uh, in the vicinity of this disagreement or in that room that can be used as a weapon. Just have uh, situational awareness at all times, so that you uh, and recognize that this can happen in any environment. It doesn't matter where you are, uh, in a, a city or in the country or mm-hmm. uh, in a you know an expensive place or in a relatively inexpensive place. These are these are things that can happen anywhere.
1: And of course, if you are a staff member, is so unable to calm the situation. Don't hesitate to call for help, either for assistance from one of the supervisors, administrator, or if if it gets to it, having to call for outside help.
0: Right. And if it uh, is a physician, you want to bring in other uh, physicians into the situation or the medical director if they happen to be on site. And if the staff member immediately involved in the situation cannot get to a phone, another staff member in the area uh, should be uh, observing the situation and then, uh, you know, making the contact on behalf of the staff member who is observing the situation. Make sure that you you have uh, policies in place and and ongoing training of your staff on how to handle these situations and who to contact so that they always know uh, you know the hierarchy or the process for dealing with these types of situations. And and to that end, make sure the staff members in the area know the point at which it's important or or time to assist in the removal of uh, the patients or visitors or the staff members that are involved in the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Staff members who are not taking care of patients should leave the immediate area but should remain available to assist if needed. And it is the responsibility of the administrator and or the the medical director to determine the severity of the situation and and to make a decision as to when to involve the police. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, hopefully it never gets to that point. But, you know, one of the things that we really recommend very strongly to all of our uh, organizations, all, the, all of our clients, is that they have a, a panic button uh, at the front desk at the very least so that they can immediately push this button and notify the authorities that something uh-huh. is happening in the organization. And especially with active shooter situations nowadays, uh, as we've talked about quite a bit and, and the possibility of you know, these types of events occurring. Uh, we found, uh, you know, back in my early days, back in the 90s, we installed one in one of our organizations because, you know, sometimes we would find uh, situations in which... Uh a spouse of a patient or a family member would show up at the reception desk or um you know people that were involved in a divorce and one spouse was taking care of the patient and the other person found out about it and came to the site mm-hmm. uh it you know some of these situations seems kind of seem kind of bizarre but it, it happens and unfortunately it seemed to happen not frequently but enough that it was important to install uh, you know some protective equipment to assure that we could quickly solve our problem mm-hmm.
1: And, of course, as you're saying, if, if there is a life-threatening incident, if there's a weapon involved, get to a safer area and call 911.
0: Right. Right. If the individual exhibiting the disruptive behavior is a patient, the administrator, medical director, or nurse manager should document the incident in the patient's medical record and ensure that an occurrence report or incident report, whatever you use in your organization, is completed and a full investigation is done, and that the attending a physician is also notified. And we mentioned this before, you know, staff education is really important here, and ongoing in-service training should be included in new employee orientation and annually thereafter. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is, you know, a a subject that none of us really want to talk about, but what if the aggressive behavior is from a physician? And this is uh, you know, an ongoing issue that has uh, been noted over the years, and we're not picking on physicians particularly, but the, the situation with a physician is this is a person in, in a position of power. They have the ability to make your life very difficult. They can pull cases from your organization. So unlike uh, uh, you know the other situations, and again, all of these situations can end up in a violent situation, but in the case of a physician's behavior, there are other issues that we have to address. And it's important to note that the American Medical Association takes this very seriously. And the AMA has defined disruptive behavior as personal conduct, whether verbal or physical, that negatively affects or that potentially may negatively affect patient care. And they have uh, published some white papers, none of which I've I've actually put into this because I didn't want to take this too far. But, um, but there is a lot of information available from the American Medical Association and various uh, other organizations uh, of physicians uh, that can help. The Joint Commission, though, has provided some examples of ways to address address the issue of disruptive behavior on the, on, on the part of a physician. So I thought we would discuss some of those, uh, those items that they uh, recommend.
1: And a lot of this is what we discussed above. So just having education of your staff, including basic training on business etiquette, people skills... In other words, how to de escalate a situation and just how to not trigger one if, if possible. Holding all team members accountable for modeling desirable behaviors, right? And enforcing and, that.
0: Right. And I think that's extremely important mm-hmm. there is making sure that everybody at every level in the organization is modeling the appropriate behavior. There's no excuse, mm-hmm. there's zero tolerance for, for anything outside the norm. And, uh, and, and modeling that on behalf of all, you know, the management is extremely important also.
1: Mm-hmm. And as you said, zero tolerance don't accept any type of disrespectful behavior or intimidating behavior, and especially with the physicians, as you said. It's not that they're more likely to do it, but they just have that power to do it that people feel intimidated and and often are afraid to speak up.
0: Your medical staff policies uh, regarding intimidating and disruptive behavior of physicians uh, within a healthcare organization should be complementary and supportive of the policies that are present in the organization for non-physician staff. And then you need to really reduce the fear of intimidation or retribution and, and protect those who report or cooperate in the investigation of intimidating, disruptive, and other professional behavior. You're, you're just not going to get people reporting this behavior yeah. if they know that they're not going to be protected or if they're going to be fired, or if you know, there's going to be other ramifications of reporting mm-hmm. this issue. And of course, this, is, this goes for all incident reporting. Is that, it is. It, it's
1: always you have to support the behavior that you want to see. If you don't support the staff member when they come to you with an issue, you're not going to have that staff member trusting you anymore.
0: That's right. Non-retaliation clauses should be included in all policy statements that address these disruptive behaviors. And you need to respond to patients and their families who are involved in uh, in, or a witness to intimidating and disruptive behaviors. And that response should include hearing uh, and empathizing with their concerns, thanking them for sharing those concerns, and of course, apologizing. And then lastly, uh, you should make sure that there is a, you know, discussion in the, both the policies and procedures in the educational program as to when to begin the disciplinary action, such as suspension, termination, loss of clinical privileges, or reports to professional licensure bodies, so that you know at which point, uh, the situation has escalated to a, a degree in which further action other than just, you know, a discussion with the provider is necessary. So during the Ohio State Association meeting, which was many months ago, Mm -hmm. uh, we had an opportunity to interview Rena Courtney, who is uh, the Vice President and Executive Director of HSS in Florida. And uh, we discussed managing disruptive physician behavior, and she did a session at that conference on this. So let's listen to this interview here.
1: We're here with Rena Corté, the VP Executive Director of HSS Florida, and she gave a talk on managing disruptive physician behavior, which um, I was not able to sit in on, but sounds very interesting. So we're anxious to talk to her about that. Good morning.
0: So good morning, Rena. Welcome uh, back. Um, we've interviewed before on uh, on another topic, and I got to admit that I'm excited about this. So just before we started the interview, I said, I assume you have four hours to talk about disruptive <laughs> physician behavior.
2: I know you might need four years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and needless to say, this is a somewhat controversial topic. Uh, we we try to make sure that physicians are not in the room when we talk about it because yeah. that could really get things going. But so I, I mean, I think it's fair to say in any organization, it doesn't matter your. Or type of organization You're probably going to have to deal with this Sometime during your career So uh, so you did a session talking a little bit Or quite a bit about how you manage uh, Physician behavior So tell us a little bit about what you talked about
2: Well, what I started with was just the definition of disruptive behavior. What does that really mean? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what are different examples of disruptive behavior? And the real crux of the whole thing is any kind of disruptive behavior, whether it's a physician or a staff member or whomever, is a threat to patient safety. And that's really why we're so concerned about it. Not to mention that it's harassment and other things. But the number one thing is, you know, obviously we're trying to take great care of our patients. And when you have that kind of things going on, it doesn't allow you to do that.
0: Right. I I remember a number of years ago as I was surveying an organization and uh, they actually uh, pulled me aside before the survey started and said, you know, I just want you to know we are in the middle of an issue with an existing physician and it will become apparent as you're going through uh, your process here that we've had to deal with disruptive behavior of this individual we're dealing with it. And I really appreciated the fact, a couple of things. First of all, that they warned me as a surveyor to be very careful about this particular physician who I would meet during that. Uh, but also I was very appreciative of the fact that they took it head on and attacked the issue very directly uh, with them. Whereas a lot of times, as we all know, sometimes this is just swept under the rug. So, you know, that transparency is important. So you want to talk a little bit about how you, you developed that mentality there.
2: Yes, and I think we have a duty to our patients, to our staff, to everyone to address this type of behavior immediately when it occurs. The problem becomes when you don't know about it because what I find a lot is that the OR staff are so intimidated that they don't always report things. So you Mm -hmm. may not know and things may be going on or have gone on for a while until you might find out Mm -hmm. about it. And then once you find out about it, you know, you really need to act and you need to act quickly because it's not going to go away. I've never found an issue where if you just ignored it, yeah. it just went away.
0: <laughs> <Is that right? laughs> if only. <laughs> yes.
2: So that's, that's really, I think, addressing it right away, whether it be the administrator sitting down with the physician to discuss the issue whether it needs to be the medical director involved
0: or some peer. some peer, yeah. or
2: some peer. Mm-hmm. sometimes it is the medical director yeah. that you're having these issues with and then you have to you know, mm-hmm. have to find some other support because you don't want to have these conversations by yourself.
1: What do you recommend usually works best having a peer speak to the doctor cuz then he feels not as attacked or is it usually somebody more in authority or the medical director or what, what do you recommend?
2: I mean, if you have a good medical director who's, hopefully, their job description is to deal with things like mm-hmm. this. But, you know, as we all know, everyone doesn't have a great medical director or they're mm-hmm. one that's afraid of confrontation, mm-hmm. and that's not good. But in that, you'd like to have them be the person speaking to them if mm-hmm. you can, unless okay. it's about an administrative type of disruption where you may be the, one, the first one to speak to them about it. Okay.
0: So I guess this gets to the issue, just kind of dealing with that issue of not necessarily knowing about it before. How do you develop a culture in your organization where people feel comfortable coming to you as the administrator, nurse manager, uh, or the medical director, you know, to identify those issues so that they feel comfortable saying, this has happened, Uh, we need to deal with it?
2: Well, I think, you know, you have to educate the staff on this at meetings, town halls, whatever it is that you have, and let them know that it's okay and you don't condone these things happening and if there's something untoward going on, you want to know about it and why? Because it's our duty to protect the patient Mm -hmm. and if things like this are going on. And I think if you put it in that light, people think of it a little bit differently than, oh my gosh, and they're so afraid of retaliation from the surgeon Mm -hmm. if they Mm -hmm. tell you something.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a tricky thing because if a nurse goes to the administrator, then they feel like, oh, are they going to look badly on me because I didn't speak right to the doctor? you know, as opposed to I'm kinda of going behind their back, but then often they're not encouraged to speak right to the doctor because that can come off wrong. So it's kind of a tough position, I think a lot of nurses. Yeah, and I mean
2: I think in as an OR nurse, I was always pretty direct, even from a young age, and the doctors mm-hmm. really respond much better to that actually, but everybody's not like that. You yes. encourage them, hey, you if you see something that they're doing wrong, say something to them. If you really can't do that, then you at least need to come tell Tell me or another leader so that okay. we can address it if you're not comfortable.
0: A couple of years ago at an ASC Association uh, conference, there was a speaker talking about disruptive physician behavior, and, uh, and unfortunately, there was a physician in the audience. And he brought up something that, despite everything else that transpired during that conversation, I think is important. And one of his comments was, you know, by the way, you know, what I did, you know, what the types of activities that I was involved in, I was, uh, I was not alone you know, that the nursing staff were engaging in discussions that were probably not appropriate. And all I did was the same thing they did. So, I mean, I think, just speak to that a little Mm -hmm. bit, is that we have to make sure that, that we're not part of the problem Uh, and that we are modeling the appropriate behaviors. In other words, it's not just them that have to to avoid Mm -hmm. it.
2: Oh, it's never just them. The difference is they're not employees, and the nurses and techs are. So when the nurses and techs are behaving inappropriately, that's a human resources issue, and you have to counsel them and discipline them appropriately and set the culture, and that this isn't going to be tolerated the same. And that's another talk on employee discipline and procedures, coaching whatever it may be and i believe i said this to the surgeon because this talk we had an hour to talk about disruptive physician behavior and that's what we were talking about mm-hmm. specifically right. mm-hmm. at this point in time not not ex- that it's exclusive Right. Uh, in any way, yeah. and it would still be just as important to deal with it were it anyone else in the organization.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And again, my only point being is that uh, we have to to model the appropriate behavior on right. the other side that we could, we could be part of the problem. And again, that's not a major reason that it caused, but we have to make sure that we're not uh, doing right. something that they then just mirror back to us.
2: Well, exactly. And some of the nurses, you know, they you have to speak to them from time to time about the banter and the. Right. And the joking and the same things you're having to talk to physicians about, you have to talk to your staff about because some of them are, and they get too friendly.
0: Yeah, right. A right.
2: lot of times, and they forget that we need to be professional.
0: So one of the things I've learned over time, and uh, I'm looking at Sue right now, who has uh, been a nurse for eight years, I are a second career nurse, uh-huh. um, and you know, on the time that you've come up through the ranks, we've talked about the differences be- between nurses that have been around for a long time and gone through those very difficult times when. Let's say that harassment was much more the norm than perhaps as is acceptable today. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just talk a little bit about how we deal with that cultural difference between, you know, the older nurses who are used to accepting it but shouldn't and the younger nurses who actually accept, you know, almost nothing. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, when I was a new OR nurse, there was a lot of stuff going on in the operating room back in the late 80s. You know, I had a doctor throw a used syringe on me with a needle like a dart, you know, because he was mad about something. You know, that kind of stuff going on. But did I I didn't take it then, and I wouldn't take it now. Right. You know, a lot of uh, what was going on is nurses report stuff and what I hear stories of in the old days, as we call it, (laughs) that the, the, you know, the the hospital administration many times wouldn't do anything about it or you don't know what they did. Right. You know, you don't know. In my case, when I reported that and they were afraid that I was going to sue them for assault and battery, um, probably, (laughs) you know, they did do something about it. And, you know, the the doctor was disciplined. But... Mm. You don't know always, too. That's right. what I always tell people. You don't always know what's going on because it's yeah. confidential what we're really, what discussions are being had, what the MEC committee or the governing yeah. board or anybody might be doing. You may not, we're not privy to tell you about that right. other yes. than it's being addressed.
1: And even the area that you're working in, as you said, the culture, because you know, I worked in pediatrics for a while. The nurses there were very strong, and the residents and the doctors really respected and asked their advice and they were really good about it. And then there's other units that I know it wasn't the case or some of the specialists were very difficult to talk to. So I think having that administration that um, has a respect for the nurses and the the tax and all that makes just such a huge difference it
2: doesn't if they know you're gonna have their back in these yeah. type of complaints or situations then it makes a lot of difference because if yes. they're worried that you're just gonna go well he's our busiest surgeon and yeah. makes the most money and mm-hmm. we're not going to do anything about that I mean and that's what happened at the apparently allegedly at Cedar Sinai with an ophthalmologist that pushed a nurse that's on the national news you yeah. know and Cedar Sinai and the doctor being sued because apparently this was going on for some time, and it had been reported
1: mm-hmm. numerous
2: times, and nothing happened.
1: It's mm-hmm. still so, going to pay now.
2: <laughs> and so then you end up on the national news <laughs> right. with well, something like that.
0: <laughs> well, and I think one of the takeaways here, too, is that uh, this isn't something that you can pick and choose whether to enforce it or not. The minute you uh, let somebody off the hook, when the minute you don't uh, pay attention to a nurse who has brought this to your attention, you've lost the respect. Not only that nurse, but anybody else that was privy to that information. So you've got to have the back of the individuals or at least make sure that they understand an investigation is going to be, you know, to occur and that some action is going to be taken if it's appropriate.
2: Right. And you just may not be able to tell them exactly what that looks like, but if they know it's being addressed, At least they, and sometimes they'll know it's being addressed if the doctor actually gets a really bad action, if it's a a really bad situation, you know, where you, and I have had this situation where you've had to go through the fair hearing process and all that, and the doctor, well, would have been let go from the center, from the medical staff, but usually I've found at that point they resign from medical staff. You yeah. know, under investigation, which is a reportable event to the National Practitioner Data Bank anyway.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and again, the result is always the most important thing. So it doesn't matter whether you actually were told how things ended up. As long as you can see that Think there was comfort. a change in the behavior mm-hmm. and it doesn't recur, then, then you know that, that the solution has been found to it.
2: Exactly. So. Very important that you follow up and, right. and they can see a difference. Correct.
0: Thank yeah. you so much, Rena. We really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you, John.
0: So as we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, we are going to change our part three of our uh, podcast to include some state-specific issues. And for this episode, uh, the biggest issue that we discovered uh, happens in New York. And this affects new facilities under construction as well as existing centers that have recently undergone a New York State Department of Health survey and who have uninterrupted power supply or a UPS unit. So if you have a a generator, gas power generator then this is not going to affect you. But if you have a UPS, which many organizations in New York City, for example, have, Mm -hmm. on January 10th, 2020, uh, the Department of Health issued a Dear Chief Executive uh, Nursing Home Administrator letter. And uh, this is focusing specifically on uh, what's happening in the ambulatory surgery industry. So in response to recent inquiries, uh, the Department of Health came up with some guidance that seeks to delineate the department's position on the use of batteries in type 1 essential electrical systems or EESs. And New York State uh, Article 28 facilities which are healthcare facilities that use general anesthesia or elect- electrical life support equipment or perform procedures in an operating room setting must have a type 1 EES as per the 2012 edition of the NFPA safety code uh, which in turn references the national uh, the NFPA uh, standard for healthcare facilities which is NFPA 99-2012. Uh, So due to practical constraints, including battery capacity limits, facility size, and operational demands, the Department of Health found that batteries are generally inappropriate sources of backup power in hospitals and nursing homes. However, and this is the important thing for our industry, is ambulatory surgery centers may use battery-powered emergency electrical systems under some very specific conditions. And this is what they stated. So the facility must meet all the requirements of a type one system and comply with the National Electrical Code, the NAC, NFPA 70, Article 700 requirements for testing and maintenance capacity and rating selective load pickup, load shedding, and peak load shaving. In other words, they need to really follow all those regulations that are specific to uh, using an EES in a type one system. And those batteries must meet the requirements of NFPA 101 Eleven, the 2010 edition regarding stored electrical energy and standby power systems based in turn upon the NFPA 70 standards. I know, Sue, you're already like your eyes are gla- glazing are. <laughs> over. But uh, this is very yeah. important and there's a lot of ramifications. So
1: in order is, to be- But I might need a bit of a summary at the end. Just <laughs> yeah. really let people know what, yeah. who needs to worry and who doesn't. So what
0: do. basically what this is saying is if you are going to install a- battery-operated system or a UPS system Uh in an ambulatory surgery center in New York, uh, you're going to have to uh, make a proposal to the Department of Health that includes the use of the battery-powered EES systems, and it must be accompanied by a risk assessment based on NFPA 99 2012 risk assessment categories that supports the appropriateness of the backup power provided given services rendered in the operational environment uh, as proposed. And in general, and this is the most important thing, for facilities with procedure rooms only, such as GI centers, the department would expect batteries to be capable of providing uh, power for a minimum duration of four hours. And then for facilities with operating rooms, again, Amateur Surgery Centers, the department would expect batteries must be capable of providing power for a minimum duration of eight hours. So here's the here's the takeaway, to That's your point. Not, yeah. <laughs> to your point is most UPS systems, and certainly the ones that we're familiar with mm-hmm. in the city, barely sometimes make it to 90 minutes. So I'm not sure that this is actually going to help those organizations. And what's happening in New York, we have one project, we actually have two projects that are on hold right now because of this new development at the Department of Health, which is limiting the ability to use UPS systems. And we know that the Department of Health has been surveying existing organizations, in Uh particular GI centers, that are using UPSs Uh and are citing them and telling Uh them that they're going to have to replace their UPS system with an actual generator, a gas power generator.
1: Even if they've passed... In the, past, surveys in the past, so Surveys in the past. Or if they've a f-
0: passed a CMS survey. So this is a state-specific yeah. issue, um, and and it's basically the Department of Health coming down mm-hmm. for, as part of the licensure. And again, uh, for those that already zoned out on us, we're talking about New York State in yeah. particular here. And as I said, this is a bit problematic for those organizations because I, I, I'm not an expert certainly on the technology here. I do know that there's a lot of changes occurring in the technology. Uh, and I think what's shocking to me is that who, would, who could argue that UPS isn't the best way uh-huh. to provide ongoing yeah. uh, support for a surgery center because there is no 10-second delay as a generator kicks on. Yeah, and
1: four he, hours seems like a long time to does. need if you're talking about a, a GI procedure. And That's right. So in a practical way, what do people do about this? Is, is there likely to be a change in this, some other update, or do you think that there's going to be some updated... Technology where you'll be able to get four hours out of a UPS system. I mean, what do people actually do with this?
0: I can't really predict the future. Um, However, uh, but we do know that, uh, and again, not to speak specific uh, brand names, we know that Tesla is developing, you know, some uh, very high tech solutions that will work not only for the home environment but hopefully, you know, for the medical environment (laughs) using lithium ion batteries that will have longer capacities and, and longer lives than the the lead acid batteries that are are generally used in the UPSs that we see in the market today, which hopefully will extend the amount of time that these units can operate at full power. As I mentioned, I'm a little disappointed here or concerned that, you know, we're trying to provide power for periods of time that are far in excess of what mm-hmm, we really need mm-hmm. in order to stop surgery. I mean, they're asking us to, to make sure in a procedure room that uh, they have four hours of power. Yeah. That seems to be an awful lot of time.
1: Mm-hmm. In, Nobody's uh, under general anesthesia. Nobody, well, I mean, that's just correct. no... Y-
0: yeah. I mean, if I you can't get a it. scope removed within 15 minutes, uh, yeah. then, you know, then you've got other issues, let alone four hours. Yeah. So I'm not sure I completely understand what the, the purpose here. And... and I had a friend, one of our uh, uh, architects who who really pointed out that you know they're asking us to replace. Mm -hmm. 21st century technology with 20th century, you know, 1960s technology in many cases with these generators and UPS systems can uh, provide instantaneous power and Mm -hmm. can tell people through text messages, you know, what's going on and I'm sure some generators can do that also Mm -hmm. but even that 10-second delay can be very critical, you know, when a generator powers up. So more information to come. I have a feeling this whole third section in our uh, podcast might be uh, having a bunch of information information for our mm-hmm. New York state facilities.
1: Well, especially with this because this is not an easy fix, especially for places where space is an issue.
0: That's right. Or in and again, this is affecting largely facilities in like urban City. areas mm-hmm. and especially in New York at least uh, New York City where it's, it's sometimes impossible to put a generator, a gas power generator in because of uh, the the surgery center might be located in a high rise or you you know in many of our places you can't put a gas generator on the roof because of the problem of putting the fuel up, up to the generator. So as I said, much more to come on this uh, we expect and if you are in this situation, uh, definitely reach out to your engineers and your architects and uh, have them help you through the process. So.
1: And John, you thought there might be some wording that might give us a little bit of hope? Yeah. So
0: I I actually read this the sentences in that letter over and over again. And and then probably on the 20th review, (laughs) I noted that it said that there were some critical words that said, backup power provided given services rendered in the operational environment proposed. Now, that sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. But I think what they might be saying there might be giving us the ability to say, wait a minute, we need to make sure that this UPS system is able to power those things critically important. Important in the operating room, such as the equipment that's going to be used uh, Uh directly in the patient care, Uh and. I, I think that gets very complicated because that would also assume that that UPS is powering that whole area, that you're going to have to power down other areas in order to increase the availability of power in the, uh, the operating room suite or where that, that critical care is being rendered. But that is one possibility, perhaps in a language, but again, I'm not uh, this, this, uh, this letter came out on Friday, and here we are recording on Sunday. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of information yet uh, to go on, so uh, we'll keep you informed as information becomes available. So let's talk about upcoming
1: events. Just remember, you're never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC, and in this section, we highlight upcoming events.
0: If you would like to have your event included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com.
1: As one of the most sought-after speakers in the industry, John is available to speak at your state or national meeting, and the ASC podcast with John Gailey can even record an episode from your meeting.
0: The next, 888-C Achieving Accreditation, uh, which is an interactive in-depth two-day seminar designed to help organizations prepare for a 888 survey. Uh, the next one is March 13th and 14th in Miami.
1: And ASCA's 2020 Winter Seminars in New Orleans, Louisiana, January 16th through the 18th. And the seminar features three ASC-specific tracks, Finance and Accounting, Coding and Reimbursement, ASC Management. And John, you'll be speaking in the finance and accounting track.
0: The first ASC Nurse Leadership Conference presented by Progressive Surgical Solutions will be Thursday, February 6th, and Friday, February 7th at the McKesson headquarters in Dallas, Texas. Amatory Healthcare Strategies is a proud sponsor of the event, and we hope to record a special episode from there.
1: The Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's joint semi-annual conference and trade show is February 20th through the 21st at the Westin Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: The AORN Global Surgical Conference is in Anaheim, California, March 28th through April 1st, and we'll be attending the conference and recording a special episode there with uh, interviews of speakers.
1: The Florida Society of ASC's Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 16th and 17th, 2020 in Buena Vista, Florida.
0: The Iowa Association of ASC's 12th Annual Education Conference is April 17th and 18th, 2020 in Johnston,
1: Iowa. And ASCA 2020 in Orlando, Florida is May 13th through the 16th. It's the ASC industry's most highly regarded and well-attended event. Attendees include physicians, administrators, nurses, managers, and owners of ASCs from across the country and throughout the world. At ASCA's annual conference, you'll find more than 50 educational sessions designed for ASC professionals at every level, nationally recognized ASC management experts, networking opportunities with more than a thousand of your colleagues, hundreds of exhibitors who can help you find the solutions your ASC is looking for. And the latest regulatory and accreditation updates. So make sure you sign up to attend. And, of course, some of us will be there.
0: That's right. I guess uh, you're not going because most Yay. likely by then we will have a puppy. <laughs> yes, I
1: might be busy.
0: <laughs> I don't know how to. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we, we will miss you. But, uh, yeah. you know, the puppy About those very first important. few months. That's gotta. right. Becker's 18th annual Future of Spine and the Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Conference is June 18th through the 20th, 2020 at the Swiss Hotel Chicago in Chicago, Illinois.
1: The Florida Society of ASC's annual conference and trade show is July 15th through the 17th at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida.
0: And the Ohio State Association Conference will be held September 30th through October 1st, 2020 at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. And unfortunately, it is so sad, as we did announce in our last uh, episode, the executive director, Randy Loeffler, uh, passed away in December. And uh, his presence will be definitely noted, uh, and uh, again, our hearts uh, go out to his family, and uh, we are praying for the both the family and, of course, the Ohio State Association, who is uh, obviously going through quite a bit of change right now. Uh-huh. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. And then spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button.
3: This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all the rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsors. First, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, one of the nation's leading regulatory compliance and financial oversight firms. For a free consultation, contact John Gailey today at 585-594-1167 or through email at info at ah ah-strategies.com and Eden Group Development, which publishes ASC Regulatory Compliance Series, the ASC industry's leading books, including the Survey Guide for ASCs, a guide to the CMS conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines for ambulatory surgery centers, and Ambulatory Surgery Center Governance, a guide for ambulatory surgery centers owners and governing body members. These must-have books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble or directly from the publisher at reg-books.com. That's R-E-G-B-O-O-K-S dot com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.